and I start hearing some screaming and some crying. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, you monsters. What did you do to this <laughs> Hello, hello, hello. My name is Jacob Miranda. And I'm Cassie Witt. Now, Cassie and I are doctoral students here at the University of Alabama, specifically in the Experimental Psychology program, where we're concentrating in social psychology. Together, we are the hosts of Corrupting the Youth, a podcast about the teaching of psychology. If you love psychology, education, or both, this is the podcast for you. Hello, 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 beautiful people. I wanted to start off this episode by saying I was just choking a couple of seconds ago and Cassie was laughing at my apparent demise. And I just want to point out, would she cry at my funeral? I don't think so. I mean, I if you died, would I get the podcast to myself? <laughs> yeah, still a little bit dying. Apparently I drink too much, too fast, too soon. I think a lot of the issue for me lately that makes me feel like I'm dying is just like the pollen count here in Alabama. It's terrible. It's supposed to weed off those who are weak. I guess so. I was teaching my class yesterday and like my nose was running so bad and I was just so stuffy and I was like, I am so sorry, guys. My allergies are just so bad. I guess first off, any uh, peaches and pits for you? Any high highs or low lows since last we recorded? Okay, I have one. I have one. So I think one of the best thing that things that has happened to me in the last week or so, I graded a quiz yesterday that my students took um, in my stats class. We just talked about single sample t-tests and probably like 90% of them got a 100 on it. Like they didn't miss any questions. And that made me really, really proud. And it also made me feel really good as a teacher because I was like, clearly like something is, you know, coming across you know they're they're picking up what i'm putting down <laughs> again this plagiarism of my words needs to really <laughs> you can't steal all my sayings you know you're picking up too much what i'm putting down Cal. you need to put it back down <laughs> i don't think that that is your saying lots of people say that say that yes but in the people in your social circles that say that i feel like might be i'm gonna be rather living. limited yeah you're definitely the egotistical person. yeah yeah, you definitely say that the most of like all of the people I hang out with. All right. I think my pit is probably I've been thinking a lot recently about how my graduate school career is coming to an end. And like, that's very exciting because, you know, I'm going to start a job and like all these new beginnings and stuff like that. But it's also really sad because like I think about like leaving you and leaving Alexa and Josh and in the lab. And I have like so many wonderful people in my life here who I'm not going to get to see regularly anymore. And that kind of has me down. I can see that as being a pit. I'd yeah. be sad too if I couldn't see me on the regular end. <laughs> You've been the highlight of my time here at UA. Well, that goes without saying. <laughs> what about you, Jacob? What are you, What's your peach? What's your pit? I would think I'd probably start with a pit first. And the pit is that more and more recently, there's been not just one, but several graduate students who have come to me dealing with basically very toxic advisors, mentors currently. And that's that makes me sad because it's just a lot of things that they're dealing with while taking into account like what are the consequences if someone changes mentors or consequences of leaving your mentor completely 
or just leaving the institution completely. Not so much of a humble brag, but I think it's fair to say, like, I'm really, really young in my career, right? Like, I don't have a lot of experience. And like, for people, I'm glad they feel comfortable t- talking to me about this and saying, like, you know, what is the suggestion? What is the advice? And I feel bad because I don't have the most concrete advice. Like, even when it comes to like very hardcore, like administrative rules of like, what is the process for me to do X, Y, Z actions? I recognize that my own knowledge about that is a bit fuzzy, just because I wasn't expecting to be that type of person or need to know that knowledge. But I feel like maybe you and I are more outspoken in our department. So like maybe people feel more comfortable coming to us to talk about these things, um, which is good. I guess maybe that's like, like a slight peach of it. Like I'm glad people feel comfortable enough. And then I think I would have two peaches, one related to the pit and then something completely different. I would say one of the peaches is that for some of those people who have come to talk to me recently, they, you know, congratulations to them, have found other mentors, have found places to be and are more happy than I've ever seen them in recent history. So some people have been able to take successful action and get out of a toxic environment. And so that seems to be like a good thing and I'm happy for them. The only other second piece I would say is maybe related to my own teaching where I was able to bring out the career center into my classroom and they were able to have like an hour and 15 minutes of like an interview workshop. And so like I had a large portion of the class return, there was like 20 students and they were doing like these like activities and practicing interview questions on one another. And it was just a huge success. And it's like a very practical, useful skill. Of, like, why are we running the things we're running in IO? Yeah, I love using resources. I love bringing in panels or like outside lectures. Mm-hmm. I know in stats, I used to bring you and then one of our older lab mates, Alex, to talk mm-hmm. about open science. And he would be the panelists, bring in the career center, bring in the dark triad lab members, like Having someone who's not me talk in front of them, I think it's refreshing. I'm sure they love your teaching style and everything, but I think like mixing it up sometimes can be really fun. And I had so much fun personally when I did that panel in your stats class. Like your students asked wonderful questions and it was just a cool kind of dynamic. I enjoyed that a lot. Definitely not for me to not get it to get out of a lecture and be like, oh, ha, ha, I don't have to prepare any slides today. But yeah, that's that's what's going on in my life recently. I mean, I know about the pit that you're talking about, and that is really sad. Uh, but I'm glad at least for one person, it's like working out favorably. Baby steps, baby steps. Yeah. Are you going to steal that saying from me too? These sayings, you did not come up with these sayings. <laughs> but I'm the only one that uses them in your life. All right. They say that you're, you're just like, parts of all of the people in your life that you love the most you know is this why parts of me are toxic cassie do i have wow okay no i'm thinking about like like those relationship studies that basically show that like the longer you're in a relationship with someone like the more you merge i think that's what we have going on here we've been friends for so long you have to have picked up things from me too just the word epistemology that's literally the only yeah, thing you, I say from you is that. I use the word epistemology a lot more in my day-to-day life than ever before. Yeah, that's true. You do use the word epistemology quite a bit. All right. So what are we talking about today? So I was thinking, you know, tis the season. And I was like, what's coming up? What can inspire us for an episode? And I thought uh, April Fool's is right around the corner. Right. And that should be roughly around the time we release this episode. I think like April 1st is on a Friday. Normally we release on a Monday. So I'm like, maybe we can do something there. And so the idea I pitched to you and you seem to like is like, when are times that we've been foolish or like when are common mistakes that we've made in our own teaching lives and also common mistakes we see even in experienced faculty members who are like more established. 
And so I thought it would be fun because I have endless stories of all the times I've effed up in the classroom, as well as I've just made notes of like watching other people teach and seeing like, mm, you know, where you see some kind of reoccurring theme sometimes. And so because obviously you've been, you know, you're older than me, you know, you've been here much longer, you've had additional what two years. Yeah. to like observe people at least within our department you probably even have more stories and you've also had more opportunities to screw up as well and be foolish so True. right like that's not a come to an end we're just trying to minimize that as much as possible right but yeah to me i just thought shorter sweeter more concise episode i mean i think with a lot of things people are often asking for advice is like what should I do in this situation or like what's some advice for things like I should be doing in the classroom but I think it's also important to consider what should you not be doing as a teacher so here's some concrete advice about what not to do so when you first pitched this topic of what not to do as a teacher it made me think of this YouTube video that I saw people talking about on Twitter not too long ago And it's called like Worst Lecture Ever. And it's delivered by Dr. Lindsay Masland, who is a psychology professor at Appalachian State University. And she's also the director of the annual conference on teaching for the Society for the Teaching of Psychology. And so essentially, it's just this video of her and she's like delivering this lecture on Zoom. And she has like some colleagues who are like pretending to be students in her class. And she essentially does all these things that you should not be doing. Um, So she's just like really rude throughout the video and like demeaning towards her students. And so she says things like, look to your left and look to your right. One of these people in the class is not going to pass. Somebody asks for like a rubric for a homework assignment she gives. And she's like, absolutely not. Like you should just know what my expectations are. Oh wait, really quick. Is this just like an OCHEM professor? Look to your left and look to your right. Like, I feel like those weed out classes basically do say that. It's just like, yeah, just no. I think it is like a really common thing in classes. Like professors will often, and I know it's really chemistry for, or really common for like organic chemistry classes. They take pride in very few students like getting an A in their class or very few students passing exams. They'll be like the average on this test is like a 15%. And that's like a point of pride for them. So I think she's like alluding to those sorts of classrooms where professors do things like that. But then she like also does things like she doesn't allow them to ask questions. And like, as she is like teaching, teaching, she is using this like kind of language that's extremely inaccessible to students. It's really confusing and she doesn't have a PowerPoint or any kind of visual aid for students. I'll link it in the episode notes for this episode, but if if you haven't watched it before, then you definitely should. I think it's a very short illustration of how you should not be acting towards your students. Are there any particular moments in that video that stood out to you? So I know you mentioned a couple, but was there like a big one? that mm-hmm. you could relate to or you're like ah or like maybe you see engaged in like within like site classes I mean I think the biggest thing for me was just how much of a bully she was towards her students in the class like at one point somebody doesn't call her doctor they call her Mrs. Masland and she goes off on them essentially for like not using the title doctor somebody shows up late to the class and she's like ugh or like they don't show up to the class and she's like calling role or taking role and 
she's like, well, let's not be like so-and-so. What an idiot, you know? It very much makes me think of what we talked about in one of our first episodes. I think when we were talking about advice for first-time teachers, where we were talking about how sometimes professors just go into a class seeing their students as an enemy. It's very much like that kind of mindset. And the very little things that you can do that maybe you think are not a big deal create a very hostile learning environment where I think like students don't want to engage or participate. I like it. And you say you're going to link to the resource, the video? Yes, I will link it. We've talked a little bit about unrealistic standards. And actually, I guess I have a two-pointer of like how a first-time teacher can set unrealistic standards, both for themselves, but also for their students. I'd like to start off with students first, because most recently, uh, I'm currently in my last formal graduate coursework, and I'm taking that on self-control and self-regulation and just different ideas or concepts related to that topic. And one thing that I'm potentially going to be writing a paper about is this idea of self-regulated learning, um, and specifically what are teachers' theories or like their own personal beliefs on self-regulated learning. And you can imagine on one end, there's this idea where they will say students should be 100% self-regulated learning, right? So like, it's not my job. They should be able to go up to their homes, set their own goals, engage in self-control. No, So again, it's goal setting, it's self-judgment and self-evaluation. So knowing the ability to reflect, um, it's knowing strategies to stay on task and just, yeah, these metacognitive strategies as well. And so like on one hand, it's like students should just be able to learn on their own, right? It's not my job for that. On the other end, I feel like there's some people who like students have no self-regulated learning. They're not going to study on their own. And so I need to read by the PowerPoint word for word, repeat myself a hundred times and say like, here's what you should know because there's like zero, there's like lack of trust in students learning anything on their own. And I feel like the common mistake is to go to either end of those extremes, especially if you're teaching psych 101 or introductory courses or even not. I think you should have an attitude where there's definitely gonna be some students who are more disciplined, have that self-regulated learning, but they probably also had a lot more privilege and opportunities from the background to pick up on those skills. Like we talk about smart goals, right? So specific, measurable, actionable, result-oriented, time-based goals. Thank you, IO degree, for making me memorize that acronym of SMART. Um, but like, and that's something that we try to teach in like motivational classes um, or motivation-based classes. But like to expect that a 17-year-old knows how to set goals, can appropriately always self-monitor on their own. Some may, some may not, but you as an instructor should probably provide that scaffolding for them for different types of students. And so like if self-reflection isn't something that people normally engage in, then you have to craft some time within your classroom so that self-reflection can occur. If people aren't used to setting concrete goals, then it's your job to teach them that. And I think just to have this implicit assumption that there is only one type of student that's either completely self-regulated or has absolutely no self-regulation when it comes to their learning is a common mistake I see. Uh, and I feel like that bleeds into other areas or other actions. So for example, reading word for word the PowerPoint, because apparently you have no trust that you know students can read for themselves. Although I don't think that's the only motivation for some teachers to read from word to word on the PowerPoint. Dare I say, is this the controversial high tech? That there are some instructors out there who are a bit lazy. And instead of actually engaging with the material, it's easier to copy and paste something and then read it out loud. And then that's what we'll label a lecture. Would you agree with that, Cassie? Are you going to join me on this hot take? I do think that sometimes it's the product of laziness, but I also think sometimes it can be just like the product of nervousness when you're teaching very 
early on in your career and you just like you don't know how to engage students all you know is that you've prepared this content and like reading the powerpoint is just like what you can do so perhaps like i have as per usual more of a kind perspective on like why people might just read off of their powerpoint slides i definitely think i was guilty of this in like the first couple of classes that i taught reading off of like a script that i wrote for myself or just like reading off of my PowerPoint slides because I was just so nervous. It was like a safety net. Here are these things when I'm panicking and my mind is going blank. Here's this thing that I can just read. And to be fair, maybe I'm thinking of more established faculty that do read for it. So it's just like, yes, if you're a first time teacher and you're nervous and you want some sort of concrete, you know, foundational point and you're like, oh, I don't know how to teach this kind of my safety net. Sure. But like when you've been a faculty member for 30 years and you have a wall of text on your slides and you were quite literally reading word for word from that and you, slide. <laughs> and you haven't updated your slides in like 15 years. <laughs> for me to say like, Maybe that's not nerves. Maybe that's someone who's not as engaged with their students and is not as motivated to perform. The L word, if you will. Uh, that's a problem for me. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Like if you've been teaching for a while and you're still guilty of this every single time that you teach, that's problematic. Although I think you bring a good point for more established faculty that teach as a common issue is that there's certain people like once you've had your slides created, like, obviously, it saves a lot of time for when you have to teach the class the next time and the next time and the next time. But then I feel like the one step too far is now I never have to change or adapt my slides or review them or make some edits or touch-ups. Because like you said, there's some older faculty where it's just like, you can tell, like, this is not new slides. This is slides you've been teaching since, you know, since Cassie Witt's times. No, no, that's also ageist. Wow. All right, Jacob, I think it would be nice maybe if we shared some personal anecdotes about times that we were foolish in the classroom. And I'm bringing this up because I know you have a really, really great story. Listen, Cassie, first off, I have many great stories. All right. So let's not minimize my achievement slash failures here. Oh, because you have but, many great stories of failure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm nervous, Cassie. Could you set an example for me of an own personal failure before I expose myself as a monster to the world? I don't have a really great story per se like you do, but I think like one of the things that I had to learn not to do was just like rushing through silence in the classroom. So, and it's still something that I struggle with, but Anytime like I ask a question and students don't answer me immediately, I know like very early on in my teaching career, I was like, oh God, I have to feel this silence. So I'd be like, what's the square root of four? And no one would answer. And I would be like two, you know, I would give them no time to think about it or like overcome like the silence, the nervousness. I would just answer for them. Someone gave me like the advice once of just like, treat it clinical psychologists treat like clinical silence you have to be comfortable with clinical silence and that made me feel a little bit better and I've gotten a lot better about it I think but I still get so uncomfortable with silence and I think I definitely have looked like an idiot before because I'll like be asking these questions and then I'm just like talking to myself just responding to my own questions and inquiries I probably looked like an idiot. Another time I looked like a fool. I think my piece of advice here is like, don't let your undergrads' parents get to you. <laughs> so this, the second time I ever taught 
101, Psych 101. At the very end of the semester, I had a student and I had to drop her a letter grade because she didn't do the research requirement where you have to participate in research studies. I think this is pretty common at a lot of institutions like the undergrads in Psych 101 make up the subject pool. You have to participate in a certain number of studies in order to like maintain your grade or whatever, like it's a course requirement. And so this particular student did not do that. And her mom emailed me (laughs) at the end of the semester and was basically like, who the fuck are you? Like, you're not even a real professor. You're a grad student. Um, Like my daughter doesn't deserve to have her grade dropped down by a whole letter. And I got so upset, hysterically crying, you know, like it really, really hurt my feelings. And if that happened to me today, like I would just laugh it off. I ended up responding to the mom by being like, due to FERPA, I can't discuss this student that may or may not be in my class. And she was basically just like, I've signed all of these forms. Like, I deserve to know like what's going on with my daughter's grades. And it just made me really, really emotional and upset. Um, but it's not that serious. And like, these are full grown adults. So like, don't let their, their mom and dad like get to you if they try to. No, I think that's a solid one. I didn't think about, I don't think I have any bad parent interaction stories. I really only have that one, but I mean, if you can imagine, I was in my second year of graduate school here And I had, this was only the second time I'd ever taught a class. It was my first time ever teaching a big lecture section. Basically the mom came at me with some ad hominem attacks and I did not appreciate it. And my imposter syndrome was already so high, like in the beginning of my teaching career, you know, like I was like, do I belong in front of all of these people trying to instruct them about something? And so for her to basically like attack me in that way and say that I didn't belong was really like hurtful. It, it, it hurt my feelings quite a bit. Dang, that's my job. <laughs> nobody else gets to do that but me. Yeah. Make sure you actually pay attention when they're like instructing you on like what FERPA is and all of that though, because you really are limited in like what you can talk about when a parent emails you. All right. Tell the story. Tell the story. So as far as probably one of my biggest failures, I would say that it didn't start off with failure, but it started off with success. Actually, it started off with multiple successes, mind you. So I'm just going to start off with saying like the failure wasn't my fault. No failure is my fault. It was the worms fault, Cassie. I will blame some worms or I will blame some oil. But let me give a bit of context. During my master's attainment in Texas, we got to lead a Psych 101 courses as part of our assistantship. And through that, I've learned about uh, classical conditioning, specifically an activity that you can do with your students in person. And I can link to it, but I believe the person's name is Charles Abramson, who's like a comparative psychologist. And he wrote a paper basically saying like, here's an activity that's cheap, easy to do, doesn't need IRV approval because it's worms. It was all about getting worms to have a conditioned response, a CR, based off what was initially a neutral stimulus, which then became a conditioned stimulus through this process. And so for those of you who are like new to learning or like, oh, it's been a while, I'll, I'll walk you through the steps. So you basically have like an earthworm and they naturally react, their response being like a flinch to a specific type of oil. I think it was like butane oil, chemists don't come after me, but it was a specific type of oil. 
And so like it's a very strong odored oil, you can measure how much they flinch. At the same time, they don't necessarily have a response to rose oil, so rose scented oil. And so if you were to put some drops on a worm, put some rose oil in it, worm just kind of like stays there, so neutral. The whole part of the classical conditioning process is you start pairing this, I think again, I'm just gonna say butane oil for now, along with the rose oil. So rose oil and butane oil, worm flinches. Rose oil, then butane oil, the worm flinches. And I think it's across like 15 to 20 different trials. So you can do it within a single class period where ultimately what you're trying to demonstrate to students is that just by placing the rose oil alone, the worm will flinch even though you haven't exposed them to any butane. So one, you're actually going to work with animals. It's harmless to them. Students have fun, they're engaged, it's easy cleanup. You can you know, put the worms back into the wild afterwards. I did it once, went fantastic. I did it twice and went fantastic. I went to Alabama and I was like, you know what? Let me bring this activity, this experience, if you will, to you know the good old deep south. And so my students were like, oh, cool. What's this activity? I got them excited for it. And I'm not sure if it's because I bought slightly different worms than the ones we originally used in Texas, right? Maybe just worms here are bred differently. I don't know if I just got the wrong type of oil. Um, but all that to say is that when students started applying the butane oil, they're like, oh my God, oh my God, the worms are flinching. And I'm like, yeah, duh. That, that, that's kind of the point of the activity that they're supposed to flinch. Like, but yeah, no, it looks like they're actually in pain. And I'm like, no, 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 it's, it's fine, right? I've done this before. Tr trust the authority figure here. I've done this twice before. They're not in any pain. They're fine. And then about three more trials going in, and there's like some slight vapor smoke arising from like their little baskets. Oh, no. And I start hearing some screaming and some crying. It and was I the look, <laughs> it was the worst. And I look down into like these little like cubby, uh, what would you say, like buckets, like little things that they're stored in with the soil. And they're quite literally dissolving in front of the students' eyes. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, you monsters. What did you do to these worms? <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. God, the worms were literally jumping. So the flinch is so strong, they oh. were jumping outside of like these little basket containers Terrible. that they were stored in. Terrible. And I was like, put the oil away, put all the oil away. And this is when I was getting mentored by like a teaching a psych instructor by Ansley. And I told her the story, and she's like, in all my years of mentoring first time teachers, this ranks up there as one of the worst things I've ever heard someone do to their students of traumatizing them. But listen, it wasn't my fault, right? Because two out of the three times it went fine. And if anything, and here's the learning. So I want anyone to be like, wow, he made them basically <laughs> kill worms. And we don't know if worms feel pain. Let me throw that out there. I still don't know if worms feel pain. Uh -huh. They could have felt nothing in True. my defense. Um, I turned that into a learning moment because the next week I talked about conformity and obedience <laughs> and the Milgram study of like, would you kill someone ordered you to? And now those students have their answer. Yes. Wow. An authority figure that they trust says you must continue. Damn it. A hundred percent of my students continued. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> 
I love this story so much. And I love that you, I love that you turned it into a teaching moment. Um, of course, I can't miss that. You know, you, it was just such a perfect opportunity to. And I have not engaged in that activity since out of fear that that may happen again. I'm like, I don't know. Did any of them write about this incident in like your teaching evaluations? It was an ongoing joke. Yes. They're like, I really I'm love sure. my class. Except when you had us murder some animals. Like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa. That's a bit exaggeratory. Amazing. It's amazing. Awful. It's really awful. I felt so bad. And the worst part is when I get nervous, I start laughing and I start I laughing like the Joker in front of them. It was not helping the context. And they're like, why are you laughing? And I'm just cackling at them. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it's because the absurdity of the scene the of jumping of worms and them crying. And I was just like, wow. it was supposed to be a good time. Who knew like the road to evil is paved with good intentions, Cassie? And so is up- the road to pedagogy. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ever gonna do this activity again? I'm going to I need to first identify what went wrong. I think that would be like a good maybe person. there are certain worms that really you just can't put butane oil on. Are you sure that you had the right kinds of oil? I think so. I think I still have some of the supplies locked up in my desk somewhere so I can investigate further. Yeah. I remember I, I remember coming to campus right after this had happened and you were like, oh my God, I did this terrible thing. <laughs> first time teaching here and I, I was so excited I'm like I want to be the cool teacher <laughs> novel teacher. you're definitely memorable I'm sure they will never forget you <laughs> I feel like stay away from this major and stay away from this <laughs> department there are monsters here so definitely don't do that so make sure when you're doing and you're trying to replicate an experiment you double check if the procedure is being followed Jeez. to the T Jacob, have you ever gotten a piece of teaching advice about what not to do that you've completely ignored? Yes, completely uh, and utterly. And I learned my lesson after, oh. you know, running headfirst into that wall. Um, and it really goes into how much time you spend on writing evaluations. So I was told from the get go, like, hey, listen, when you give feedback, you don't have to give the best feedback. You don't have to go in depth feedback, blah, 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 blah. But as like a young teacher, I was just like, still a young teacher, I was just like, no, I am going to take the time to provide this quality feedback because I think all students are going to read it. And now I look back at that even a few years later, I'm just like, oh, you idiot. Uh, it's just like, of course, of course not. And I would say that for the first time I graded a set of papers for a class, I think I had a subset of, I was overwatching 30 students and they had to do weekly papers. And so like the first semester, like I was basically the TA who had to grade those papers. And my advisor was like, don't spend too much time on it. It's fine, right? I legitimately spent 20 hours for my very first weekend going over like these single, like they were just one page papers of like reflections. And it was like, that's such an interesting point. Here's some links or here's a YouTube video that you might like, or, oh, you, you're basically citing this psychologist. Maybe you'd be really interested in this and that and the other and it was just like this heavy in-depth feedback of like all these resources and things all the time. And not a single one of my students in that section ever brought it up. Not a single one of my students was like followed up with me about the advice or like questions I had asked them. So like sometimes I was like curiosity questions. Like, you know, what do you think about X? 
And I tried it for like three or four more times like for the first month or like maybe it just takes some time. They're getting used to me. And it just felt like I was just speaking into the abyss. And maybe that's where I've changed my grading where it's like now I've basically did the opt-in option where it's like for even papers that are not mandatory. It's like if you would like feedback, tell me the type of feedback you want and how you'd like me to help you. Here are different ways I can help you, but just let me know. And so I can cater it to you and what you want, I think is probably my best adaptation because it was just basically an unhealthy, unsustainable way of doing things for like being the first time when you're writing papers or giving qualitative feedback. You can't do it for all of them. I think that is such a common experience, especially for graduate student instructors. Um, So we have a class here that's like a research methods lab that people um, take alongside like a research methods lecture section. And so the labs are typically taught by graduate students here at the university. Last semester, I taught one of the the lab sections, but many of the other graduate students who were instructing didn't have much teaching experience. Like this was probably like their first time teaching a class. And a huge part of the class was like students were over the course of the semester working on writing a research manuscript. And a lot of the graduate student instructors were saying that they were spending just this inordinate amount of time on providing students feedback on like the sections of the paper that they were turning in over the course of the the semester. And I had like a couple of people come to me for advice because I was not spending, you know, 30, 40 hours a week on, on grading these writing assignments. And It's just like, it really is a skill though, I think that comes with time on like learning to focus on the big issues. Just because someone is in college doesn't mean that they're going to be the best writer either. I think that a lot of, especially early instructors don't have a good idea of like what the typical college student writes like, you know, like they have really, really high expectations. Like you, I mean, I think that you alluded to earlier for like what students are capable of producing. And so I think in classes like that, where it wasn't necessarily like a writing class, it was like a research methods class. So like what I tended to do, like when I was grading those assignments was not going through and being like, oh, you're the spelling error. You didn't have like a comma here or like this wasn't the best transition, but rather focusing on like, you know, why didn't you report sample size or like. Why didn't you like explain this variable better? Or, you know, you like should have cited somebody here, right? It's not clear like what study in particular you're referencing, like those sorts of like big picture ideas rather than like torturing myself and spending like a couple of hours on every single paper, like identifying every single writing and grammatical here. Right. So more big picture stuff. I was going to say, I was trying to reflect on like, what would be some solid advice? Cause I feel like you and I kind of just turned a pattern where like, at least we always want to end on strong advice or like more concrete steps for someone. Mm-hmm. And like two points that I was thinking about was one, I think that in order to avoid these mistakes, especially when it comes to like unreasonable expectations, I do think people need to sit down and kind of reflect on what is their teaching philosophy. I think that a lot of the time people only think of their teaching philosophy or their teaching statement when it comes to the job hunt, when it comes to like, oh, this is something I have to do for an application, but actually developing a philosophy for yourself, not related to any job, right? And obviously it can help when you're crafting that letter, but for you to know, like, what do I want to get out of my teaching and what do I want to get my students get out of teaching? And always having those at your forefront of your mind. So like for mine, one is always intellectual humility and curiosity as being the big two things of like, no matter what my teaching is, I want those to be my guiding factors. 
for Cassie, you might be like, I want an appropriate like epistemic calibration where, right, they might need you more and lean on you more in the beginning, but you also want to slowly transition them to be more independent thinkers by the end of the semester. Yeah. And, and that guides your teaching philosophy and all the actions you do and the grading that you do ultimately, right? That's kind of the underlying foundation. I think it's one, even though as simple as just like sit down and reflect and like just write that out in a bubble or write that out and brainstorm it, I think it would be helpful. A more concrete like thing to actually do movement wise is I've sat down into other professors, like basically the department has some well-known like good teachers. Um, so like, for example, I'm thinking of like Dr. Will Hart, like he's known so- in our department as being like, a student favorite and engaging and knows how to tell stories, right? If it's your first time and you're like, oh, I've only had bad experience with teachers, try to find out and identify the good teachers in your department and just say, hey, can I sit in on your undergrad class or can I just like tap in for a graduate student thing just to see like how they run it and what they do. Mm-hmm. And you're, I'm going to be straight up, you're not going to like everything like that person does, right? Like Will, he does some things in teaching where I'm like, it doesn't fit my style, but it definitely fits his. Other times I will be like, wow, he really did X, Y, Z and he did it really well. And I've been trying to improve on that. How did he do it that way? And just talking to them and being frank with them, like, hey, you did this. Like, did you practice? Is this just years of experience? How do you think I can get better at it? And actually be willing to seek advice from those types of aspirational role models like the people that you want to be. Mm-hmm. I think people still feel a bit shame of like advice seeking or like seeking for help but when seen as incompetent or someone who's just like less than skilled, especially when you get into a PhD program, sometimes there's a pressure of like, you should know everything from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And I feel like students just hold themselves to that account or graduate students hold themselves to that account of like, okay, now everyone thinks is they're expecting me to know everything. Nobody is, nobody's yeah. expecting you to know everything, much less know how to be the greatest teacher, but show that initiative. I'm not sure. Cassie, yeah. do you have like any concrete steps or like something you would say? First, I want to say, I really like your point about thinking about your own teaching philosophy, like early on, that was an exercise that um, I had to do when I took the teaching of psychology class here as part of the class, we had to write up our teaching philosophy. And that was extremely helpful, like thinking about the kinds of things that I want my students to get out of my courses. But I'll also say, I think an important part is like you trying to embody the things that you want your students to take from your classes as well. So for example, like one of my like goals that I have for my students, as you allude to, is like the epistemic calibration. But one of my goals is also like cultivating respect for humanity and like different viewpoints and and things like that. And so I think that by being a teacher who embodies that kind of value and that kind of goal, like you're setting your students up to also embody that value or that goal right? So like not being demeaning towards your students or like not being a bully, not being rude, extending compassion towards them, allowing for like all sorts of different perspectives and like life backgrounds and things like that and making it part of the class and like part of the way that you teach, I think is just so important. And then I think my second piece of advice is to just don't take it so fucking seriously and like accept that you are going to make mistakes and not setting an unrealistic standard for yourself that you have to be perfect. 
because I think that this kind of mentality that you have to, especially at the very beginning of your teaching career, be the most perfect instructor that, you know, your students are succeeding in your class and like you're changing their lives, you know, like you may very well be doing that for some of your students, but some of them are going to skip class. They're going to ignore you. They might talk about you in the group me chat and like silly things that you said or do you know, you're not going to be perfect and you're probably never going to be perfect. That's the reality of the situation. So just like giving yourself like the grace um, and the understanding that you might like extend to a colleague if they were having trouble in their class, you know? Yeah. Probably the last thing I'll add on to that is also be willing to actually listen. So I feel like a lot of people are starting to get on board with this idea of like asking what can be done or changed in the classroom. But then when students actually say like, oh, something that you might have been thought was a good feature or good detail after like oh this actually isn't working out I've had some instructors where they like I hear you I hear what you're saying um thank you for sharing that with me and I disagree and I'm going to keep it up and it's like okay cool so then that might breed animosity to be like if you're going to go as far as to ask for feedback again you don't have to implement it all but as being transparent or justifying like things that you are implementing as well as probably having good justification if you're not going to implement something mm-hmm. rather than just saying, nah, uh, that really isn't too helpful, at least in my experience. Because then it's just like then because you lose trust, you lose rapport for your students of like you're saying we can tell you things, but you're not actually adapting to us when we tell you things. Yeah. So I guess I'll close with the story. So a couple of semesters ago, I taught stats And I taught it online. It was like 2020, like the height of the pandemic. And so it was the final exam. And we were like sitting in the Zoom call. People were like taking the test. I was hanging out in the Zoom call with them in case they had questions or whatever. One of my students like sends me like a private message on Zoom. And she's like, I think like you have this question wrong. Like, I don't think one of the correct, like the correct answer is listed So like I go back through and I'm like, oh, you're totally right. I made a mistake in my calculations. So I go into Blackboard while my students are trying to take this test and I go to change the exam and it kicks all of them out of the test. And there's like no way that I can like remedy this, right? Like there, some of them are like almost done or like halfway through the test. There's nothing I can do. I have to like clear out all of their like attempts on the exam and they all have to start over. And I was mortified and they were all like really cool about it. Like they were really sweet. And some of them were like laughing at me and stuff in a, in a kind way, like not like what an idiot. Well, they were probably like, what? <laughs> um, but I was just, I was freaking, I was freaking out. So I guess one piece of advice is like, make sure, you know, like on these online systems, what the heck you're doing before you go in and like try to make edits and do things like that. Like know what you're doing in Blackboard, especially because I did not. And it clearly got me into some trouble. Or any type of like school management system. Yeah. Because I feel like at least for me, like there was no formal training in Blackboard. It was mostly like, oh, now you have a class you can run. You have 20 tabs to the left of you that open up and each have 10 options on their own. And it's like. "Mm -hmm." So asking someone who's an experienced teacher, like what are the features you need to use Mm -hmm. as well as common mistakes or critical mistakes of like booting people off during the test yes I'm sure you'll share that with anyone who uses blackboard and like oh, yes. again you'll be like don't do this dang I didn't that's a new story for me mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, Cassie, um, this might be a bit of a shorter episode. Unfortunately, my student conferences are back in full gear again. And for today, at least, my next student meeting is in six minutes. And so without cutting it a little too short, I think we did provide some solid advice mm-hmm. uh, for an episode six. What do yeah. you think? Um, and I guess we'll see you guys, catch you guys in the next one. Bye, corruptors. Bye, Stay corruptors. corrupted. Stop. Spread the corruption. Uh, <laughs> bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Hello, hello again. We just wanted to thank you one more time for listening to Two Random Weirdos. If you want to listen to us ramble some more, we'll be posting episodes hopefully bi weekly on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Fingers crossed. If you want to get in touch with us, we can be found on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at CorruptYouthPod. Or feel free to email us at CorruptingTheYouthPod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and helping us spread the corruption. Bye! Bye!